If you have a Bible with you this morning, let me invite you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 5, and we'll be in verses 1 through 11 together this morning. I wanted to thank Zach Harris for preaching last week. Did a great job on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. Great uh, listening to you preach, brother, so appreciate you doing that last week. Uh, Our family was out uh, last week. We were in Ohio. We had been invited to go to a Christian concert and to participate. We ended up not participating, but we still got to attend a lot of incredible concerts from Toby Mac and Skillet and uh, from Carrie Job and from, um, you know, Newsboys. There was like 20 different bands there. We had a great time. I'm, I'm happy to say your pastor was in the mosh pit. We were down front. Me and the older kids, we made it known our presence in that place for the glory of God and the joy of all of his people. So we had a really, really good time. We were very blessed and encouraged. So thanks for letting us be gone this past week. I'm back. We're in Acts chapter 5. We're looking at an incredible story that ought to put the fear of God in every man and in every woman, every boy, and every girl this morning. The title of the sermon is Lying in Church. Acts chapter 5. Let's look at verses 1 through 11. Luke records this, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart and you have lied not to men, but to God? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out immediately. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we just want to soberly be reminded of this significant historical aspect of your character that we see here in the scripture that you are a holy God and that you are a holy judge. And we know that you give and extend mercy and grace. But we know that there are times when, according to your own wisdom, that you render that justice in this life. We pray, God, that we would be reminded of the seriousness of our sin and that you would humble us this morning and that you would allow us this morning to be honest with ourselves and those around us of what kind of things might be going on in our own hearts, things that we think somehow we can hide from you. 
Things that we think somehow don't really matter to God. Things that we've rationalized over and over again until we just think that uh, you don't really care about our morality, about what we do, about what we say, about what we think, about how we act. And so we're praying this morning as we read through this historical narrative of what happened in the early church of the book of Acts that it would grab our attention this morning and that you would pierce our hearts today and that you would show us your love through redemption today in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Teach us what you want us to learn this morning so that we can live out our faith more honestly and with more purity and integrity before you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, what's the worst thing that you've ever done in church? <laughs> what's the worst thing you've ever done in church? I think about that, that question for myself, and I think about the time that my brother and I would just uh, sit there in the pew next to my mom and dad on this one particular church service with a few cousins that were uh, around, uh, maybe at a family uh, uh, type of holiday weekend, and just starting to laugh and snicker and elbow each other and point each other and write funny things in our pages. And I remember one uh, Sunday that it got so out of control, you know, after my mom and my dad gave us like the dirty look, like, you know, what are you doing? You're embarrassing us. We just had to get up and walk out. There was like a row of like five or six guys. We just got up and walked out because we couldn't handle it, you know? And you think like, what's the most embarrassing thing, the most awful thing you've ever done at church? Maybe you've heard the story about the little girl who was acting up a little bit in church and she wasn't quite able to keep it together. And her mom was pinching her on the knee and telling her she's got to be quiet in church. And finally, she, uh, she kind of quieted down some. And then she just started laughing. And her mom looked at her like, what are you doing now? And she said to her mom, I may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing up. Maybe that you felt like that at some point. You're just trying to cover what's going on. Uh, maybe you've heard about uh, stories about kids who've gone swimming in the baptistry. That's why we didn't put a baptistry in, by the way. We didn't want that to happen. Maybe you heard about kids who drank all of the grape juice on Communion Sunday, or even worse, they ate all of the animal crackers out of the nursery. If that's you this morning, we are going to have a time of confession after the service. Well, Ananias and Sapphira did something, in a sense, much worse than any of those things I've listed, though we know sin is sin. They did something very bad. They lied. And they didn't just lie to anyone, they lied to God. And this sinful act cost them their lives. As you know, the book of Acts is a transitional book from the Gospels to the Epistles, from the works of Jesus to the works of the Apostles. Acts is a transition between looking at Jesus and living your life for Jesus. And Acts is that transition from the cross to the church. And in this transition, we see the church begin from the purity of the Holy Spirit redeeming his people and purifying them to be a holy church. But as we are going to see this morning, not everyone in the early church was pure. Not everyone was holy. Sin had infiltrated the church through Ananias and Sapphira. The idea of sin defiling God's people is a pattern throughout Scripture. This New Testament account has a couple of Old Testament parallels. In the purity of paradise, in Genesis chapter 3, Satan entered that garden to entice Adam and Eve to sin in the Garden of Eden. And their sin has now affected the entire human race. 
When the Israelites had consecrated themselves to God by observing the rite of circumcision and celebrating the Passover after they had entered the promised land of Joshua 5, just a couple of chapters later in Joshua chapter 7, it was Achan's sin of stealing from God that affected the entire Jewish nation. Or how about when God had appointed Saul to be the first king of Israel, and then Saul, King Saul, took matters into his own hands, and he made sacrifices in his own way, didn't wait for the priests to show up, and so God had to confront him through Samuel. All I'm trying to say is that too often, after a really high, a spiritual high, think about the purity of the Garden of Eden, think about the Israel getting their first king, think about entering into the promised land and things seem to be going really well after they whipped up on Jericho and then Achan's son at Ai caused them great defeat. After a high high comes oftentimes a dangerous low. And as the church, we have to watch out and we have to be on guard. The Bible says that pride goeth before destruction. And could it be that somehow with the church launching from Pentecost of Acts 2, seeing the Holy Spirit descend on these apostles and new believers and speaking in tongues and doing incredible miracles and everything seems to be like this is now the kingdom being ushered in, how could anything go wrong? I mean, Jesus died on the cross, but now he's been raised from the dead. I mean, we were without for 40 days, but now the Holy Spirit has come in power and we're seeing incredible things happen. What could go wrong? And yet the Bible warns us that we have to watch out, that we have to watch both our life and our doctrine. Beware lest ye fall. And we will see this morning that in the excitement and in the beginning of the early church, Satan filled Ananias and Sapphira. He filled their hearts and tempted them both to lie to God and to put God to the test. And this affected the entire church, as verse 11 says, and all who heard these things. This morning, we're going to take a look at two stories in one. First, the story of Ananias in verses one through six, and then the story of Sapphira in verses seven through 11. It's really a duplicate. It's the exact same thing that happened to the husband that happened to the wife. And so first let's look at the story of Ananias, verses one to six. Your first blank, if you're taking notes, just simply says the outward appearance, the outward appearance, verses one and two. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles feet. Well, in order to really understand this, you have to understand what's going on in the context. The book of Acts, as we've mentioned, is that transition from the gospels to the epistles. It's about the early church and how it started, and it's about how Jesus even ascended in chapter one up into heaven, and he told his disciples that they were going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're going to do amazing things. At Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit came with power. The New Testament, uh, the new believers were baptized. Baptized, and they began to live in community. 
And if you remember, at the end of that day of Pentecost, it says in Acts 2, 42 through 47, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the new believers did, and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and held all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds of all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad, generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We've looked at that several times. Now look at, at the end of chapter 4, which pretty much says a very similar type thing. Chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." The last time we were in this text, we read verses 36 and 37. Thus, here's an example of someone who actually did this. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we saw at the end of our time last time, here's a real dude. His name is Barnabas. We're going to get really familiar with him throughout the book of Acts. He's a great encourager. He came alongside Paul, and he came alongside John Mark, and he actually sold a piece of property, and he came, and he brought those proceeds, and he laid it down at the feet of the apostles to use as they saw fit. This Barnabas was truly an encouraging guy. And apparently, from that act, that sacrificial act, maybe others were spurred to do something similar. And so maybe Ananias and Sapphira thought, you know what, that's a good thing what he did. We want to do that too. Except they were only to lay part of the proceeds at the disciples' feet. Now this is still a noble thing. I mean, have any one of you ever sold a piece of land and brought the money that you made off selling that piece of land and laid a portion of it here at the foot of the altars. Anybody ever done that? You don't have to raise your hands, all right? But I mean, it's still a pretty noble thing, right? They sold property, they brought a, uh, probably a significant portion of that, and they came and laid it there at the apostles' feet. And, and remember, this whole early church's generosity uh, is not really a form of communism, Christian communism, as some would say. Those who gave shared their possessions, and they did so out of their own free will. And it was as any had need. So here, here's what the problem really is from this context that Ananias and Sapphira had been predetermining to only give a part of the proceeds but by the outward appearance, they acted as if they were giving all of the proceeds. That's what the problem is. The problem was that they lied. They said that they gave it all when they only really gave a portion of it. This sin is not a lack of generosity. This is a sin of a lack of integrity. What they did was wrong. And Ananias, in the Greek form, of the Hebrew name is Hananiah, which meant, so Ananias' name in Hebrew meant Yahweh has dealt graciously or just simply grace. For Sapphira 
which comes from the word sapphire, means beautiful. So ironically enough, we have Mr. Grace and Mrs. Beautiful. And they come down before the church and they lay their offering of the proceeds of the land down at the foot of Peter. These names are ironic with their character, Mr. Grace and Mrs. Beautiful. And certainly, they must have had some type of sinful motive. Their motive was to look good in front of others. They wanted to appear generous. They wanted to be thought of as being big givers. They desired the accolades of men over the approval of God. They were filled with pride. They were focused on earthly riches instead of on heavenly rewards. Ananias and Sapphira were willing to be deceptive. They were willing to lie to the early church, to lie to Peter, the apostle, and to lie to the Holy Spirit. They had an idol in their hearts. They cared more about the recognition of man than they cared about living an honest life before God. Well, can I remind you this morning that the Bible says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Listen, you may be able to fool people, but you can't fool God. He knows who you are. He knows what your character is about, and it's really not about the outward appearance at all. Be careful not to fall into the same sin. It is so easy to care more about your outward appearance than to care about your heart. You want everyone to think that your family is perfect. You want everybody to think that your marriage is perfect. You want everybody to think that your kids are perfect. Everybody knows that's not true, all right? (laughs) So we all know, right, that every home has challenges and difficulties. There is nobody perfect. And yet the temptation is is to make others think that we're perfect. And so you end up living a lie instead of being honest about the fact that you need help, that I need help, that we are all a mess. We're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Without the gospel, we are all a mess. We are a mess without his mercy and without his grace. We are all a mess, if, and we need to help one another to look to Jesus and to be loved by him. And it's his grace that brings us out of that mess. It's the grace of the gospel that says, I know you're a mess, I know you're ruined, but I'm extending to you eternal life. I'm extending to you my love. I'm extending to you my mercy and my grace to bring you out of sin and to to have you be set apart and to have you be truly holy before God positionally because of what Christ has done for you. It's his grace that affirms that you are his and he transforms our hearts and he causes us to long for real Christian living instead of pretending to be something that we're not. And that's what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. They were caught up in that outward appearance. I was gonna feel so good if everybody in church views us to be really sacrificial and really generous and really loving, that'll kind of just feel so good for people to know how good we are. Your next blank says exactly that, the internal motive, verses three and four. We see here, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? 
So we see here there's some heart problem going on with Ananias and Sapphira. Peter, Peter, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, has divine insight. Some would say this would be an example of a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, two of the spiritual gifts, which God sovereignly revealed to Peter at this time where he knew exactly what was going on, and yet he's going to be an instrument in God's hands to kind of deal with it, apparently in the way God wanted him to deal with it. He's going to give them this, this, this opportunity to talk about it or to interact with it, but they lied. They, they lied to him. You see, the text says Satan filled Ananias' heart. And so we've got to ask the question there, whether or not that means that Ananias and Sapphira were even true believers. I mean, if it said Satan filled their heart, it seems like Satan entered into Judas a few uh, uh, months earlier uh, whenever the, the betrayal took place. And so the question is rightly asked, well, what about Ananias and Sapphira? Were they believers? Were they not believers? And I'll just say to you, I think they were believers. And all the commentaries that I read would state that uh, reasons why that all the commentators say that they think they're believers. And here's just maybe three quick reasons that might um, support that position. Number one, the context says at the end of chapter four, verse 32, that it is uh, the, the Christians here, the church was, had the full number of those who believed. And so in the church, we're dealing with true believers who are struggling, but they are the full number of those who believed, Acts 4.32. A second reason why maybe many think they're believers is that they were involved with the Holy Spirit, which indicates some type of relationship with the Holy Spirit. So they were in relationship with the Holy Spirit and in communication to some degree. Number three, Satan can personally influence believers. It's not unheard of to think about the fact that Satan can influence. Now listen, Satan can't indwell believers, and it doesn't say fully that they're indwelled. It does say they're filled, but the word there can mean this outward feeling and influence doesn't necessarily mean this internal um, possession, Uh, you know, and it's not something that's unheard of. For example, you certainly remember what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And what did Peter say? Peter took him aside and rebuked him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So we know that Satan can greatly influenced believers. Jesus even referred to Peter as Satan because in that moment, he was being a hindrance to Christ. But Jesus said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Paul also warned us in Ephesians, in chapter six, the passage on spiritual warfare, that it could happen to Ephesian believers because he's just reminding them, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Peter warns us about this as well in his epistle of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. So again, all that we're saying is believers can be influenced by demonic activity. 
They can be influenced. They can be tempted. Satan himself can come as an angel of light and even partially deceive a believer into thinking something that he ought not. So again, we don't know 100% sure if Ananias were believers or unbelievers. Those are just a few cases of why I think it's more likely that they were believers who had a setback. And not only did they have a setback, they had a significant deceptive thing going on in their hearts that God takes seriously. And so Peter reiterates here in verses three and four that the money was at Ananias' disposal to do with it as he pleased. So he's just saying, hey, no one said you had to give it all, but the way that you presented this is deceptive. Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Answer, it's because of Ananias's own sinful heart. Certainly we wouldn't say, well, the devil made him do it. You said, well, he was filled by the devil and he's like a roaring lion, so maybe it's not really Ananias's fault. It's the devil who did it. Well, sure, the devil has influence, as we just said, but it was Ananias who chose to go through with it. James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So don't forget that sin is something that we are culpable for. We are responsible for our own sin. And here's the deal. Ananias had an evil desire. Call it pride. He wanted to be admired by his peers. Call it greed. He wanted to keep some of the money for his own selfish gain. Call it deceit. He rationalized his sin to the point that he was deceived himself. And we need to be careful about judging other people's motives, but we also need to be aware that everybody has a motive. And that means that you have a motive. And what do you do with your heart when you're struggling with evil desires? What makes you willing to sacrifice one thing in order to gain something else? That's what's going on here. Ananias is willing to sacrifice his integrity and his truth-speaking ability in order to gain something that meant more to him, which would have been the approval of men. Ananias was willing to sacrifice his integrity to gain popularity. Ananias was willing to sacrifice his honesty to gain human admiration. Ananias was willing to sacrifice his walk with God in order to gain, in his mind, in his walk with man. And the question for us this morning would obviously be, what are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to give up in order to gain what it is that your flesh is craving for, that you covet? And can I remind you this morning, dear Christian, that there's really nothing that you can give up that compares with the glory of Christ. There's nothing that you could give up that's of wholeness or of, 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 of the Christian heart and character that God's called you to that would ever compare to whatever it is that you think that you might gain by pursuing sex or pursuing alcohol to the point of drunkenness or pursuing materialism to the point of it just feels so good to live in life's luxurious, luxurious comforts, but if you're giving that up in order to sin to get it, then that has become an idol in your heart. And let me just remind all of us this morning, if you're a Christian, what you really want is not that anyway. What you really want is more of God. What you really want is more of Jesus. What you really want is more of the Holy Spirit working in your life. What you really want, praise God, if you have been born again, is not more things from this world, but you want more of God. And you want more honesty in your life. And you want more integrity in your life. And you want more truth in your life. Don't be deceived. 
Don't think somehow, I really want this. You don't really want that, not the regenerated you. And yet we know there's always the battle, right, between the, the, the regenerated nature and the remnant of the old nature that can still be affected by sin. And so this is the wrestling match that Ananias and Sapphira apparently had gone through in their heart, and they gave in. We all know what that feels like. They, they maybe wrestle with it, and they just said, we're going to do it. We've decided to sin. So your next blank says that basically they committed the unthinkable sin. I didn't say the unpardonable sin. I said the unthinkable sin. I say it's unthinkable because of how Peter frames it here at the very end of verse 4 when he says, you have not lied to men but to God. I mean, that's unthinkable. That somehow that this Christian couple, Ananias and Sapphira, would actually tell a lie and that they would tell a lie in church but that they would tell a lie to God. This passage, by the way, is one of many key passages supporting the deity of the Holy Spirit, where he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. And we understand here that he also says to the Holy Spirit. And so here we're understanding that the Holy Spirit is indeed God. The Holy Spirit is of the same essence of God. The Holy Spirit has the same power as God. The Holy Spirit has the same character as God. The Holy Spirit has the same attributes as God, the same eternality as God, the same omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence as God. So that when Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, he is lying to God. Probably in Ananias' mind, he had just rationalized to the point where he just convinced himself it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. But Peter is clarifying the issue from Ananias, and he's helping him see his sin in black and white terms. And I like that about how Peter's doing this, because I think that we need to be doing this for each other. As Christians in the church, as we live our lives together in each other's homes and each other's business sometimes, we need to be honest enough to say, hey, you know what? I hear what you're saying about how you're struggling with A, B, or C, but let me just tell you what the Bible says about that. When, when you're tempted to disobey, you need somebody. could be a mom, a dad, a small group leader, a small group uh, discipleship leader for youth group. But when you're struggling with something, you need someone to clarify for you what is going on. When you disobey your mom or dad, you need somebody to clarify that to you, that that's a sin. When you're tempted to tell a little white lie about something, you need someone to call you out on it and say, you know what, that's a sin. When you lust after something or someone, you need somebody to help bring clarity to the fact that that's a sin. When you are being selfish or unkind, when you're being arrogant or rude, when you're being angry or in despair, when you are sinning in any way, you are sinning first and foremost before God. That's who we sin before. That's what David said in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. After he had committed a very public sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he was more concerned about, God, it's against you and you only have I sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight. And you know what? You and I need to be in a healthy church if for no other reason than someone will call us out when we are in sin. We need that kind of accountability. And guess what? That same person who hopefully is calling out your sin is going to also show you grace. And they're going to show you mercy. And they're going to show you the love of Christ. And they're going to say, I love you. That's why I'm having this difficult conversation with you. Because I just love you so much. 
And I know what Jesus did for you. He died for you. And he was raised again that you can move beyond this sin. You can be cleansed from this sin. This doesn't have to control you or dominate you or identify who you are. You're a child of God. And I love you. That's what we need. We need to be at a church like that. We are to function as our brother's keeper. I mean, the message of the world today is like, well, I'm not my brother's keeper. It's not my responsibility. Don't judge. Don't judge anybody, which just basically means everybody can do whatever they want and no one can confront anybody for any reason. That's not biblical Christianity. And we're seeing it lived out here in a very raw way in the early church where Peter confronts Ananias to his face because he loved him and he loved the purity of Christ's church. Jesus had said in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So the idea would be that confrontation hopefully would start in private. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother And if not, there are other steps of church discipline to get two or three involved and then to get the whole church involved. Paul says it this way to the Thessalonians in 1 Thess 5, verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And again, that passage is talking about there's a different way to approach different sins in a more robust way and in a more you know, understanding way, depending on whether the person is rebellious. That word idle can also be translated as rebellious. You gotta admonish them. That means to confront them and to instruct them firmly, to encourage the faint-hearted someone if they're already broken about their sin and they're coming in tears and repentance, or at least in repentance, you know, that you wanna encourage them. Hey, I understand, I know God is good. He's going to forgive you. We gotta be patient with everybody. And, and we need to be that kind of church. We need to be a church that can be real about the challenges that we face and to be honest and transparent so that we can help each other. I mean, we all need a Peter in our life. We all need a a Nathan, like what Nathan did for David. We, We all need a Paul. We need a Barnabas. We need a Timothy, people who are discipling you, people that you're running with, and people you're pouring into. All that to say is that in this chapter this morning, we are understanding that lying to God is a big deal. This is not something that God winks at. This is not something that in this time, in this story, that God's like, don't worry about it. This is a big deal, and we see the ramifications of it here. Thomas Constantinople, or Constable, sorry, I'm not familiar with his name, but this is one commentator who wrote this about this passage. He said, quote, lying to the Holy Spirit is a sin that Christians commit frequently today when Christians act hypocritically by pretending and devoting that is not there or surrender of a life that they have not really made, they lie to the Holy Spirit. If God worked today as he did in the early Jerusalem church, undertakers would have much work. So he's saying, hey, basically, we lied to the Holy Spirit when we're acting hypocritically, acting like we're something that we're not, covering up who we really are, that we are lying, in a sense, with our actions to the Holy Spirit. Well, let me ask you this morning, based on that definition of lying to the Holy Spirit, have you ever lied to God? Have you ever pretended to be something that you're not? Have you ever, maybe you didn't tell a bold-faced lie, but have you ever pretended that you, everything's going well, you know, the typical Christian greeting, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine. (laughs) You know, 
It's like, we, we gotta be real and honest. You know what, I'm really struggling, but God is good. You know what, actually, it's been a rough week. I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about what, what God's teaching me through what I'm going through. You know, there's gotta be a better response than just always saying, hey, everything's good, everything's fine, I have no problems, and I don't really need you, you know, asking direct questions in my life. Have you ever pretended to be something that you're not? If you have, then in a sense, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Our next blank here, verses five and six, the negative consequence. We read exactly what happens here to Ananias. When Ananias heard these words, which words? You have lied not to man, but to God. When he heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So what happened? Some people try to give a scientific explanation that somehow Ananias realized his sin and he got really nervous and had an anxiety attack. Some people would say that he had a heart attack. He died out of shock or embarrassment. That may be true. I kind of read this a little bit more to be this was a sovereign judgment of God, that God struck him dead in that moment because that's what we all deserve. The wages of our sin is death. So this is not God acting outside of his character. This is just God determining that in this case, at this moment, in this time, with this situation, to please his own purposes of demonstrating his holiness and probably setting up an example for the early church and every subsequent church that holds to the true gospel, that God judges sin. I mean, we're talking about the day that God killed somebody at church. This is not the first time that God killed somebody for their sin. In fact, turn with me back to Leviticus. Leviticus, there in your Old Testament, third book of the Bible, and you are familiar with a couple of these stories, but let's just be reminded, this is not something new. This is not something different. This is what God does when he deems that it's the best thing to do. I'm talking about here Nadab and Abihu of Leviticus chapter 10, verses one and two. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So they did something that maybe on a surface look, like a, no big deal, maybe they're just doing some priestly stuff, burning some incense, but God had not authorized this fire. And Nadab and Abihu had done what God had told them not to do, and so fire, into verse two there, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Again, this, this behavior was too casual, it was too irreverent, it went against the clear uh, description of what was to happen by who at what time in the temple. And so God consumed them with a holy fire. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. So go to the right, a few more books, to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, another famous account where God killed somebody in his righteous judgment. And we're talking here about Uzzah and the ark. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. This is David bringing the, the um, Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down because, there was, uh, because of his error 
and he died there beside the ark of God. Now again, Uzzah was not clearly following the Lord's instruction. He wasn't supposed to touch the poles or the ark of God in any way. And even though it seems, again, from our vantage point, well, it's innocent enough, it's not innocent to do something that God forbids. Let God take care of his stuff however he wants to take care of it. But you can't start tinkering with it, and you can't somehow add to what it is that God is wanting to do. And so because he broke God's clear instructions, God, it says, struck him dead. Let's be clear about that. He didn't just all of a sudden fall of a random heart attack. Again, this is God killed this man, and that's according to God's holiness and according to his character, and it's what we all deserve because the wages of our sin is death. Those are two famous Old Testament accounts. Then we got Acts 5 because some people would say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. He's a God of judgment, and the God of the New Testament's always just a God of grace and mercy, and he would never do anything like that. Well, he did it here. In Acts chapter 5, and of course we read about it, turn with me if you will to 1 Corinthians 11, another account in the New Testament that warns us about this very same thing, other New Testament passages. So we read two from the old, two from the new, Acts 5, and now 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, as they're preparing to take the Lord's table. Paul says to the church of Corinth, remember Corinth needed a lot of correction and they needed to be um, told what to do and not do and, and be careful about some of the things that they were struggling with. And so Paul says here, when they come together in the context of the Lord's table, verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So he's saying here, when you take communion, you're to consider the body, both your own body and the body of the church collectively to make sure that you're not approving of some ongoing sin, which he had already confronted them of in chapter five about a, a man who had his, his father's wife. And so he said, hey, you can't allow that to happen as a body and you can't allow that to happen as an individual because if you're allowing or condoning sin in the camp and you know about it and you're not dealing with it and if you allow sin to continue in your heart and you know about it and you're not dealing with it, according to this passage in 1 Corinthians, he says that's why many are weak and ill and some have died. Now, again, I think we have to be very careful with that passage because we could tend to think, well, anybody who has some chronic illness must have some secret sin they haven't confessed. Be careful about that. Now, if that's something that's prompted your spirit and you're like, man, I am on my deathbed, I'm gravely ill, and I obviously wanna search my heart and see if there's any sin I've committed because, you know, or if you're just a little bit sick and it, and it scares you. And you're like, man, I need to go back through my heart and make sure that I'm right with God. That's an important thing to do. But don't you dare, biblical counselor, Say to that individual who's sick and they've just been diagnosed with cancer, well, it's probably because of some sin in your life. If you do that, I will come find you personally and I will take you by the ear. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so, uh, you know, don't be that person. And then when somebody dies, again, we're talking about sometimes God does take somebody out. And you've all been to a funeral of some family with a kid who grew up in church and somewhere along the way kind of walked away from the Lord and they died, some accidental tragic death. And it has to be a question sometimes of like, well, maybe the Lord just took him out. That's okay to think that, but don't say that to the mom and dad, all right? <laughs> don't, don't let that be your count. Maybe if the pastor and the mom and dad have that conversation because mom and dad are asking questions about it, that's appropriate in pastoral counsel. But I'm just like, don't offer it. Well, you know why he killed your son. 
Again, I will come find you personally, and we will deal with it, all right? But you want to be loving and kind, but and yet at the same time, I'm not trying to water down the fact that it happens. It does happen. It's in the Bible. We know God does it. We just don't know for a fact, since you don't have a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge today in a revelatory way, to know for a fact that that was God who killed that person in that moment. I mean, in a sense, it's all ordained by God. He decrees everything. God causes all things to work together for the glory of God. So he's behind it anyway, but you don't know for a fact that he struck them dead in that moment as an act of judgment. You don't know that. But we can read that as a warning, as a reminder to us, because it ought to get our attention. We ought to be aware of what's going on. There's even a passage in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So again, there's just some acknowledgement. There are some sins that might lead to death. Sin always has consequences. And an untimely death could be a result of ongoing sin. And anytime anybody dies, though, we should just be aware that the wages of our sin is death. Sin equals death. And then we see in verse 5 here, your next blank, the positive effect on all who hurt. Don't you love that there in verse 5 when it says, uh, basically, and great fear came upon all who heard it? That's actually the positive effect of this. This was a healthy fear. This is a fear of God. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is Psalm 34 verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And so when verse 5 there says that fear came upon all who heard it, it just caused them to step back and to be in awe of God and to be reminded that God has all power. It's a healthy thing to be reminded of the holiness of God and of the consequences of our sin. And it, it reminds us that we need to get in line. We need to check our own heart. We need to understand that apart from the grace of God, I could also fall. It, you know, it reminded me of, it, this concept reminds me of when our kids were younger. You know, we have five wonderful, beautiful kids. And when they were younger, if, if one of them happened to need discipline, all the others would straighten up real quick like. You know, you've been in that situation, you're going to take one to the bedroom, and all of a sudden you come back and the other kids are like, do you need any help with anything, Dad? <laughs> Dad, I cleaned my room. <laughs> and you're like, oh, all right, come in here, i got to talk to you about your pride. <laughs> just, but we're just saying there's like this fear of the Lord of like, this just happened, and the whole church now they have their attention, and they're like looking up. You know, it's like, sit up, sit up in your seats, stop falling asleep. Nobody's sleeping, but I'm just saying, it's like this is the effect that it's happening in the church where people's attention are grabbed. That's a good thing, right? It is a healthy thing for God to remind us that he's God and that he acts in today's world in miraculous ways for good and what might appear to be for bad from a human perspective. But from God's perspective, we know he's working his perfect will. Well, now that we've seen the story of Ananias, let's look at story number two. And just to encourage you, it's the exact same. Now we're looking at the story of Sapphira, verses 7 through 11. It's almost like deja vu. This story happens again, a duplicate story in the Bible, I believe, because God wants you to know he's not kidding. He is not messing around. And so we see again in verse 7 and 8 the outward appearance 
this time of Sapphira, verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, and she said, yes, for so much. Sapphira may have been wondering where her husband was. The text said about three hours had transpired. They have to realize that in the ancient world, three hours is not a big deal. There wasn't, uh, in the ancient world, there was no texting. There were no cell phones. There was, a no, there was no, I know it, your exact whereabouts of every moment of every hour of the whole day. Someone could have easily left for the day and come back later at night and they would not have seen or had a chance to contact their loved ones for the day. So it's not that alarming from the sense of an ancient world. Someone else has asked, well, how come Peter put Sapphira to the test, you would think that maybe Peter's first words to Sapphira would have been, oh, by the way, your husband has now been dead and buried. There's some critics who would say that Peter was being insensitive and that he was making a show of what was going on by giving her an opportunity to either come clean or confess and, and, and that that's, a, that's not a good thing to do. To which I would say, be very, very careful to ever critique an apostle of God who God himself doesn't critique in the Bible. When Peter needed to be critiqued, he was by Paul and by Jesus. And it's recorded for us in scripture in Matthew 18 and Galatians chapter two, right? But you don't have the right, and I don't have the right to say, well, Peter didn't handle that one very well. And so we have to understand that God is at work doing something here for a greater cause and a greater purpose that we can all benefit and learn from in this situation. So don't let your mind wonder about those details in an unhealthy and irreverent way. The point is not why wasn't she informed, but the point is why did she lie? She had every opportunity to come clean and she did not. Again, be reminded God never forces you to lie. You are never stuck in a situation that the, the truth can't handle. It's never too late to honor God by speaking the truth about whatever situation you're in. Again, if you're thinking about that concept and the thoughts come up about, well, what about in Joshua chapter two when you have Rahab and then she's honored in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? What about uh, the, the, the Nazis who come to take the Jews? Do you have to reveal to them where you're hiding them? And I would say that's an ethical dilemma that can be operated out of your conscience and in wartime tactics, I'm okay with using good wisdom and sound uh, reason to handle those situations for the greater good. So I don't have time to fully go into that and address that, but in this situation, what I'm trying to say is too many times we think it's a good thing to lie and it's not. And it's not one of those true wartime mentalities of true life and death in a bitter situation like the ones I just described, but it's more of like convenience. And it's more of like, well, God will understand, or I don't want to hurt them, or it's just a white lie. And that's where Satan does his best work in the church, convincing you that somehow it's okay to go outside of God's commandments and to do whatever it is that you want. Because somehow you know better in that moment than what God knows. Proverbs 12, 17, whoever speaks the truth and gives honest evidence, whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. 
Proverbs 19.9 says, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. So we see outwardly, she follows in the same footsteps of her husband. Verse 9 says, your next blank, the internal motive, the beginning of verse 9, Peter said to her, tell me, or excuse me, uh, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Her and her husband had made a pact, apparently, to stick to this plan. They had agreed together. They had rationalized together. They had sinned together in their own hearts. And just because two consenting adults agree to do it doesn't make it right. Proverbs 15, 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 15, 21, Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. The internal motive was probably the same for Sapphira as it was for Ananias, something to do with pride, greed, deceit, a fear of man over a fear of God. And then we see in the middle of verse 9, your next blank, Priscilla also committed the unthinkable sin. She followed in the footsteps of her husband. How is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. So she committed the same sin, agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. And then the implication is she also died. What does Peter accuse her of? Notice there in the middle of verse 9, he accuses her of not only lying, but testing the spirit of the Lord. Peter accused Ananias for lying to the Lord, and now in a similar way, he's confronting uh, Sapphira about testing the Lord. Was that really a sin to test the Lord? Of course it's a sin to test the Lord, to test the Holy Spirit, according to one commentary, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, means to see how much one can get away with before God judges. It means to presume on God, to see if he will perform his word or stretch God to the limits of judgment. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So it's not a tenth, one of the Ten Commandments, but any commandment in the Bible holds the same weight. You are not to put your God to the test. Of course, Jesus quoted this passage when he was in the temptation in the wilderness. And what's happening here is Sapphira was presuming upon God. She was putting God to the test. In Acts 15, verse 10 says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? 1 Corinthians 10, 9 says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. In other words, don't test God at his word. If you disobey God and his word, be prepared to face the consequences. And when what, what, what Peter is saying to Sapphira is, are you really testing the omniscience of God? Don't you know that he knows everything? We know that he has searched us and he's known us and he knows when we sit down and when we rise up, Psalm 139. He searches our path. He's acquainted with all our ways even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. How could Sapphira be so foolish? And yet to properly internalize that this morning, we should say, how could I be so foolish? How could you be so foolish to put God to the test 
Have you ever tested God? Have you ever presumed upon his mercy while purposefully throwing yourself headlong into sin? May God have mercy on our souls. The negative consequence for Sapphira, I've already read it, the end of verse 9, the same men who buried her husband came back in to bury her. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. In the ancient world, burial was done immediately. There was no embalming. There was no waiting. Maybe an hour on some occasions, you could maybe argue when people were dead in the room and they went in and healed them before they'd been buried. But for a lot of people, they were buried pretty much right away. So for her, she was buried there next to her husband. And we've got to understand that for this sin, lying to the Holy Spirit, testing God for this sin, she lost her life. This is the day that God killed two people at church. And Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, she got what was coming to her for her sin. That's what we deserve. We deserve the same punishment, death. I think it was John MacArthur that said, what a secret sin on earth is, is an open scandal in heaven. God knows it all, and he will render justice or mercy as he sees fit. And on this occasion, Sapphira got justice, punishment for the sin that she committed demonstrates the justice of God. And yet we know God is also a God of mercy. But keep in mind that Ananias and Sapphira never asked for God's mercy. They never repented. They never turned from their hypocrisy, and so God chose to render justice as is consistent with his character. We don't have the right to determine when God offers mercy and when he gives justice. That's what God does. But a text like this warns us, I want to walk with him, and I don't want to presume upon him, but I want to commit myself to him and ask for his mercy to help me live in such a way that would glorify him in all things. And then we see verse 11, the same positive effect on the church and great fear came upon the whole church and, all, and upon all who heard these things. What we're saying is it is good for a church to be afraid of sin. It is good for a church to practice church discipline because God practiced church discipline. How's that for your next argument when somebody says, well, why do you guys argue church discipline? I think we should say, well, Jesus said to in Matthew 18, but God did it. God disciplined people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and so we're just practicing what God has practiced. Uh, you know, I never grew up in a church that practiced church discipline. I never really knew a lot about that concept until I got into my college years and, and an adult, uh, you know, a young adult becoming more aware of what was going on in the churches I attended and some of the issues. And I remember when I was in a church in Savannah, Georgia, there was a significant uh, sin in the church that was not dealt with uh, publicly, but it needed to be. 
because it was a bad ongoing situation that involved sexual sin. And I went to my pastor in private and I said, hey, why don't we just deal with this the way the Bible says deal with it? And he said, because we don't want to embarrass anybody. And it's not our business to go public with what's private. And I'm like, yeah, but everybody kind of knows about it because we're watching it happen. And then I remember when I came to visit Grace Community Church 2002, I came out to check out the seminary and I wanted to see, you know, what it was all about. And so I enjoyed my visit to the seminary. And then I'm sitting there in a Sunday morning service at Grace Community Church. And at the end of the service, they did a church discipline. I'd never witnessed anything like this. And I'm just sitting there. John MacArthur gets up and, you know, he's at the end of his message. And he says, it's, you know, it, it, it's my responsibility as your pastor to carry out, you know, uh, this next matter of business for our church. There is a, a lady by the name of so-and-so who committed this particular sin, in that case, it was the sin of adultery, who we love, this, this woman, and we're pursuing her and begging her to repent, but she will not. And so we are left with Christ's instruction to discipline her. This is our step three of disciplining her out of the church, and he named her name and the sin in front of like three, 4,000 people that can fit in that auditorium at one time. And I just, I just sat there and I just looked around like, oh my word, this is going down, like in a big church. Like, what are these people thinking? And I just saw soberness, prayerfulness. He you know, appealed to the congregation, please pray for her. If you know her, will you help us pursue her so that she would repent? I remember when the service is over, everybody got up and walked out and I just sat there. And I'm just like, I can't believe what just happened. What I'm trying to say is that when church discipline is done well, it has a very positive effect on the church. I, I probably told you about the time when I was serving as a youth pastor in Texas. We had the lady from our community that I was aware of who happened to be visiting us because uh, I think me or my wife had invited her to church. We had interacted with her a couple of times and I thought when I saw her visit, I'm like, oh no, because I knew that day we were gonna do a church discipline. And I'm like, great, this is like the first time this lady's ever been to our church. You know, Lisa and I hopefully seem like nice people and we're gonna like discipline this situation and this lady's probably gonna be all upset. And sure enough, when the discipline was done, after the service is over, this lady came right up to me and she says, what do you call that? And I'm like, what? And you know, you're like, what you talking about? You know, she's like, what was that? You know, and I, so I explained to her, I'm like, hey, that's church discipline. We believe in God's words through Christ who said blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I like it. <laughs> she's like, my husband has been living in an adulterous relationship at our church, which is just a couple of miles down the road. And I'm trying to get my pastor to confront him and he won't. And he's the drummer in the band. And so I asked my pastor if they at least not let him worship with the band. And the pastor says, well, we don't want to turn him away. So whenever church discipline is done right before God and before his people, it always has a positive impact on the church. It reminds us of the importance of us being purified before God and before one another. And so let me just ask you this morning, is there anything that you need to confess before God? Is there anything in your heart that the Holy Spirit, even at this moment, has said, hey, you need to deal with that. You've been hiding that long enough. If so, as I close in our service, we have a couple of people available at that back door, and we'd love to just pray with you, encourage you, counsel with you, and to meet with you. If you're here this morning and you've read through all this passage and you're not a believer, 
and you're not even born again at all, and you're scared to death about what God did. It should scare all of us to death, and you want to come to Christ this morning and to repent of your sins. Don't forget, he's a God of justice, but he is also a God of mercy, and he extends an olive branch through Jesus Christ. That's why Christ came. That's why he died. That's why he was raised from the dead, so that you can have eternal life. And this morning, we would be amiss if we didn't invite you to come and to confess any sin that you believe the Lord wants you to confess or to come to Christ this very day. And as we think about going home, maybe you can just reflect on these take-home points. Number one, your sin is more serious than you think. Real simple takeaway point, don't belittle your sin. It's a big deal with God. Number two, you need the church more than you think. If you're not a believer who's involved in a local church, you'll miss out on this accountability factor that you so desperately need. So the church is a big part of your Christian life and growth. And number three, God is at work more than you think. Don't lose hope. It could be that through your confession today, that God works in a beautiful way to help you in a way that only he can. God is at work more than you think. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on a very significant passage in our Bibles that just really scares us, rightly so, reminds us um, of your holy justice, uh, causes us to look throughout the scripture to see the consistency of your character, and then most of all, pointing us to without Jesus, this is what we all deserve. Without the help that you've sent us through the Holy Spirit as believers, we can be overcome by Satan himself who prowls around like a roaring lion. We can give in to our temptation that's still within and it doesn't please you. So we come before you broken this morning desiring to confess our sin before you today in the quietness of our heart maybe together as couples, as families when we get home, maybe even here with a few couples in the prayer room that are available this morning. God, just work in our church. God, we desire that you would have your way in our church. We know that we struggle, but we know that you're so good and you're so patient and you're so kind and you're a God of truth and a God of grace. Thank you for the grace that you extend to us through Christ. I pray that we would be encouraged this morning as we reflect on these things, as we sing this final song, receive our worship from pure hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.